Well, my friends, we are returned to the book of Matthew this morning. Yeah. Some of you thought I'd gotten lost, but it was only a long detour. We are back to the book of Matthew. We've been gone for a couple of months from Matthew, but we are back to Matthew this morning. And, and uh, we're going to be picking it up in uh, chapter 23. This morning's uh, message is sort of a kind of a lead in to uh, chapter 23. I didn't really want to dive into it just yet without setting it up a little bit. Messiah came to his people. John tells us he came to his own, and his own received him not. They were not interested in the kingdom that he came to offer them. And the reason they were not interested is they were self-satisfied. They were content with the religious system that had been built and which they were very comfortable in functioning. It was a system built on hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And so when Jesus came and challenged them with the reality of the truth of God, the nation was put to the test. Will they retain their hypocritical system in which they were very comfortable functioning and in which they felt no real need for God? Or would they turn? Would they fold their tent, as it were? Would they declare spiritual bankruptcy? Would they call out to the Messiah to save them? Hypocrisy is a, a very dangerous thing. It's, it's kind of like dry rot. And that is that it it erodes the internal integrity of the lumber. Yet the exterior surface can remain looking pretty much okay. I can remember some number of years ago here actually on this property where we were kind of walking around and talking. And I looked up at a piece of fascia board on one of the buildings and... I stuck my finger up and I pushed on it. It was painted. It still looked, it looked worn, but it looked okay. And I stuck my finger right through the board. The only thing holding it together was the paint on the outside. Dry rot had completely eroded timber. And hypocrisy can do that very same thing. It can completely erode the internal life of a person. Yet the outside can appear, at least to the casual observer, as being basically okay. Such was the condition of the nation of Israel. Find your way in your Bibles, if you would, to um, Matthew 21, I guess. is probably a good place to land. We're going to get to 23. 21. It's been a couple of months, and so let me just kind of remind you the events that lead us to chapter 23 in order to understand 23. Final week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week as it is normally referred to, occupies a substantial portion of all four gospel accounts because the events of that week culminating with the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to the very linchpin of what God is doing in this world. In the raising of Lazarus, which occurred perhaps six weeks or so prior to the Passion Week, narrated for us in John chapter 11, Jesus intentionally performed a miracle that he, that he made more spectacular by his delay, you'll remember, John reports, such that Lazarus' body had decayed, it had been in the tomb three days, had decayed, and thus the resurrection of Lazarus could in no way be passed off as a mere recitation. But it was a, a complete um, reformulation of the human body. It was an amazing miracle. 
And it set the city in an uproar. And set the stage for Messiah's entrance into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And that's what he did. He entered the city on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry recounted for us here in Matthew chapter 21. You remember he entered the city to the, to the acclaim of the, the people, particularly the Galilean pilgrims who had been traveling with him and witnessed some of the miracles just prior to that time as well. So Jesus enters the city and the city is in an uproar and, and, and tens of thousands of people have poured out to see this one. He visits the temple on Sunday. He looks around, takes stock of the place and leaves again. Coming back in on Monday morning early and cleansing the temple. Matthew recounts that for us in 21 verse 12, 13. It's the second cleansing of the temple. Mark adds to us in Mark 11 and verse 16 that following the cleansing of that temple, Jesus possesses the temple and the temple mount in a display of sovereign kingly authority for a period of two days, that is Monday and Tuesday, he will not allow anyone to pass through and use it as a cut through in the city of Jerusalem, but he, he establishes his sovereign authority over the Temple Mount. That sets up the confrontation of Tuesday, a series of confrontations, really, between Jesus and the religious authorities. First, the chief priests and the elders come in verse 23, chapter 21, to challenge Jesus on the question of authority. He has cleansed the temple. He has staked it out and and declared his authority over this. And that doesn't sit well with the chief priests and the elders of the people who themselves claim authority over the temple. And so this series of confrontations that occupy a good bit of Tuesday kick off. In response to the challenge of his authority here in chapter 21, Jesus responds to a series of three parables. We looked at each of those parables in detail. Beginning in verse 28, He recounts the parable of the two sons. You remember that parable addresses the rebellion of the nation, right? One son says he will go and do it, and he doesn't. Another says he will, and he never does. The first one then repents and and so forth. So it speaks about the rebellion of the nation. Verses 33 to 46, he tells his second parable about the, the landowner and the vine growers. And there he addresses the retribution of the nation. Where the, in the parable, the vine growers, right, they say, here comes the son, the owner, the inheritor of of the vineyard. Let's kill him and seize the vineyard for ourselves. Knowing full well that they are talking, that Jesus is telling this parable to them. And they themselves have already plotted and determined to destroy the Messiah, to kill the king in order to retain control of the religious system of the nation of Israel. He follows that with a third parable in chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, the parable of the wedding feast. And there he addresses the rejection of the nation by God himself. So Jesus dispenses with the, with the, the uh, chief priests and the elders through those three parables, the Pharisees standing on the sidelines are very much enjoying that sort of thing. And then they approach him, and actually in, in, in conjunction with the delegation, chapter 22 and verse 15, about paying taxes, right? The whole tribute to Caesar question. And Jesus evades their trap and turns it back on them. They then come, the Sadducees come back a second time. They try to trap him, beginning in verse 23 to 33, with regard to the question of the resurrection, and Jesus evades that trap as well. Then the Pharisees send a lawyer, and they try to trap him in the question of what is the greatest commandment, chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Done with these 
disputes, these attempts to destroy him, Jesus silences them all, beginning in verse 41 of chapter 22, by appealing to Psalm 110 and verse 1, King David himself, and he puts them all to silence. So Tuesday has been occupied in a very strenuous fashion, a back and forth, as they have attempted to maneuver the Messiah into a box, into a place where they either catch him in a statement that they can charge him with insurrection before Rome, or they can discredit him with the populace because of taking some kind of unpopular position. Jesus has evaded, he has eluded all of their traps, he has turned them back on him, he has swept the field clean and demonstrated himself to be the very king of Israel. And then we arrive at chapter 23. Chapter 23 is Jesus' public denouncing of the scribes and the Pharisees. It has got to be one of the harshest chapters, certainly in Matthew, I would say in the New Testament, and perhaps uh, in the scriptures themselves. It certainly rises up there with some of those other prophetic denouncements of the nation of Israel. It is a very strong chapter, very strong. Following chapter 23, and again, just to keep your bearings here, and Jesus, in particular, his, his pronouncement upon the Pharisees, he laments the end of chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. He laments over the city of Jerusalem. I think chronolo- chronologically following that, uh, Matthew doesn't record it, but Mark and Luke do. He observes the widow's might, and that is the, the widow offering the very last coin she has, right, to go home and die, and he speaks there, Uh, Not in commendation of her who would give her last coin, but in judgment upon a religious system that would take a person's last nickel and leave them to die. That kind of a system is judged by God. And indeed, in chapters 24 and 25, Jesus details what's called the Olivet, Olivet Discourse, and that is the time preceding Messiah's second coming to establish the kingdom. So that's the trajectory of the book. But Matthew 23 is what is before us this morning. And it is before us still in kind of an overview sense. We'll begin to look at it in detail beginning next week. But a few reminders, things that you probably know, some of you perhaps have forgotten but the, uh, the nation of Israel was, uh, and the leadership of the nation of Israel was broken down into basically two opposing camps. We have the Sadducees, that they are the, the aristocracy of the nation of Israel. They are the chief priests and elders of the people. They control the temple. They control the Sanhedrin, that is the council, the leadership council of the nation. And they control the sacrificial system. They are absolutely hated by the common people, for they are very corrupt. Hated by the common people. Playing off against the Sadducees are the scribes and the Pharisees, and they are the religious teachers of the nation. They control the synagogue system. That is where the people meet week in and week out to get their religious instruction, to, to enjoy communal life together. They, are, they, they are control the very heartbeat, the very fiber of the nation. They are feared by the common people and they are admired by the common people because they have achieved, they have defined and articulated what it means to be right with God and they themselves have apparently arrived at such a status. They are the holy men of the nation. And the people fear them. They fear them because to, to fall on their bad side would be to be kicked from the synagogue system, to be put out of the synagogue, which would cut one off from the life of the nation. So they feared them, but they also admired them for their religious attainment. Jesus, as you read the Gospels, regularly sets himself against primarily the Pharisees. His call to discipleship is a call for them to leave the system of the Pharisees and join with him. 
And as you read through the gospel accounts, what you find is that Jesus, when he speaks to the common people, he regularly, intentionally speaks in such a way, uh, direct terminology, that that he's setting a difficult path before the people. He is calling them to to hate their father and mother, their brother, their sister, their family, to take up their cross, to follow him, to turn away from the religious system that they have known, to choose him over the Pharisees. And he does it in such a way that, that he leaves the people no alternative because what the people would like to do would be to retain the Pharisaical system and grab hold of Jesus at the same time. They would love the Messiah. They love his miracles. They love the thought of his kingdom and throwing off the overlords of Rome, yet to be able to retain their own system, their own hypocritical system of self-attainment in the religious world. Jesus will not permit that. A call uh, to follow him is a call to leave everything else behind. Probably the most classic example to illustrate this would be found in John chapter 6. Where after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds are very massive. And Jesus intentionally turns to them and says, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part in me. John 6 ends with everyone walking away from him. He disperses the crowds with his call to discipleship. So here we are in in the Passion Week, and uh, after the triumphal entry, we have the adoring crowds, right, of Palm Sunday. They have poured out to see the Messiah. They have enjoyed the debate there on Monday and Tuesday on the Temple Mount. They have really delighted in seeing Jesus in a street fight, as it were, with both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he has vanquished them all. But now it's time to decide. Jesus is going to put them to the test. He's going to force them to make a decision. Are you going to follow me or are you going to cling to your own religion of self-attainment? It is decision time. And so chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel and Jesus' scathing rebuke here of the scribes and the Pharisees is a scathing rebuke of the hypocritical religious system of the scribes and Pharisees, of which the people are very much a part. Very much a part. He is going to call them to make a decision. In the narrative, in the flow of the narrative, after Tuesday, we enter into what's called a silent Wednesday, the The Gospels don't record any activity that day. They open again with Thursday's activity. And uh, by the time uh, Friday before the sun comes up, of course, Jesus has already been tried and been been convicted in an illegal trial. And they're going to have him on the cross before the city wakes up. So Jesus is going to send them home with the last words ringing in their ears on Tuesday afternoon of his scathing uh, denouncement of the Pharisees and their system. And he's going to call the people on Wednesday and Thursday to think about this. Will you have me or will you have them? Make up your mind. So let's read chapter 23. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, notice he's speaking to the crowds here, okay? He's denouncing the Pharisees, but he's speaking to the crowds. He spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with even so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. And respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. 
But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, and mercy, faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides you st- who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness." So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? You can imagine how that one went down. He sent the people home. He sent them home. To think about this. Why the harsh words. Against hypocrisy in Matthew 23. Eight times. It's called out. The reason is. Is because hypocrisy. Always involves deceit. Always involves deceit. And deceit. Is a form of lying. And lying always proceeds from the father of lies. It is of the character and nature of the evil one. John 8 and verse 44. Satan lies by nature. God hates lying. He hates lying. And he hates hypocrisy. Because it is a form of lying. It is a form of lying. Now, in the Old Testament, there is no distinct Hebrew word for hypocrite. The concept is there, to be sure. And the concept is primarily one who is insincere in their worship. That's the Old Testament concept of hypocrite. The word, the New Testament word, hypocrite, actually comes from a Greek word. Word And it is a transliteration of the Greek word coming into the English language. It's not a translation. It's a transliteration 
of the Hebrew word comes into the English language. And it comes from the Greek and it refers to the stage, to the realm of acting. And it, a hypocrite would be an actor who would put on a mask in order to, to play a particular part or role. They would appear to be someone who they are not. A hypocrite. Originally, the word does not have any kind of pejorative terminology associated with it. It just referred to the actor with the mask. Of course, it has come to us, particularly in the religious realm, to be associated with those who pretend to be something that they are not with regard to devotion to God. So the Old Testament concept of the insincere worshiper is combined with the Greek idea of one who, who is not who he appears to be, one who wears the mask, and the two come together and it, and it comes to us with the idea of one who is play-acting in the realm of religious devotion, the hypocrite, the hypocrite. Matthew 23, eight times they're called out, the scribes and the Pharisees called out as hypocrites. The nation of Israel, in effect, are being called out as hypocrites. And I think it would be helpful for us this morning, before we begin to look at the specifics of their hypocritical religious system, for us to take some time to reflect on hypocrisy in general. And as it relates to us. So what I want to do this morning in the time that we have, and we don't have a lot, is I want to look with you at the danger of hypocrisy and the remedy for hypocrisy. The danger, or maybe I should say the dangers, plural, of hypocrisy, although it's actually just one big danger with lots of little pieces. And then the remedies. So those of you who like lists are going to love this morning's sermon. It is a list sermon. It is not a list of things that you can check off and thus assure yourself that you are okay with God. All right? Sorry. We don't do those kind of list sermons. This is a list of the dangers of hypocrisy. Now, in the time that's allotted to me here, I am not going to be able to develop anything upon this list. So I'm just going to kind of basically go through them with you. Uh, many of them, or at least a number of them, are probably going to require you to go, boy, I need to come back and think about that. So that's okay. Go back and think about them. Talk with someone about them. See what you think. But let us jump into it. There are 14 on my first list. Okay, 14. So here they are. We're just going to roll through them. The danger of hypocrisy. Number one, hypocrisy hardens a person's heart toward God. In that it denies God's ability to see into the human heart. Hypocrisy hardens a person's heart toward God. In that it denies God's ability to see into the human heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, of course, says that man looks on the outside, right? But God looks where? Onto the heart. So the hypocrite, the one who is pretending religious devotion... They are hardening their heart because what they're saying is that God can't, doesn't really know that I'm fake. Two. Hypocrisy is dangerous because it gradually annihilates all sense of its own condition. Hypocrisy gradually annihilates all sense of its own condition. Luke Chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. When I'll turn there, you'll remember it. It's the, uh, the uh, Pharisee who goes up to pray, right? And the, and the publican, the tax collector, goes up to, play, to pray. The Pharisee prays to himself and says, you know, basically, I'm thankful that I'm not like all these other people. Right? He has his, by that point in time, his hypocrisy, he doesn't even see it. He can't see it. So hypocrisy does that. It gradually annihilates its own sense of its own condition. A hypocrite gradually loses track of the fact that they're a hypocrite. Third, hypocrisy is more attractive in settings where righteousness is internal with outward manifestation than in those settings where righteousness is earned by one's deeds. 
Let me go over that with you again, and then I'll give you a couple examples. Hypocrisy is more attractive in a setting where righteousness is internal, but has an outward manifestation, right? That in those settings where righteousness is earned by what one does. Illustration being, let's start with paganism versus Judaism. In paganism, there is no pretense that one is righteous on the inside. One becomes righteous by what one does. So one does not need to fake what one does. Judaism, righteousness, true righteousness is an internal thing that it to manifest itself outwardly. So there is a, there is a bias in that system to pretend that the internal reality is there by one's outward actions when it's not really there. And I would suggest to you that Roman Catholicism and Protestantism demonstrates some of these same characteristics. That is, that hypocrisy is a danger, not exclusively to Protestants, but it is a greater danger to Protestants than it is to Roman Catholics. For Roman Catholics, righteousness is ultimately based upon what one does. Where in Protestantism, our righteousness is what God has done in us, shown outwardly. You can go home and think about that. Fourth, hypocrisy encourages unmerciful judgment of others. The more blame the hypocrite finds in others, the more confident he becomes in his own worth. And the more easily he soothes his own conscience in regard to the inconsistency of his own moral state with his actions. That is, the hypocrite will find, right, the speck in everyone else's eye to be able to avoid the what? The log hanging out of his own. Fifth. Hypocrisy gradually deceives a person into thinking that God is impressed by outward acts of piety. And thus it dims their ability to truly know God. Romans 10 and verse 3 Right? They have a zeal for God, but they are seeking to establish their own righteousness, Paul says, of the Jewish nation. It is because of this reality, the thinking that a person is, is, that God is impressed by our outward acts of piety, that Jesus says the tax collectors and the harlots are closer to the kingdom of God than the Pharisees were. Because the tax collectors and the, and the uh, harlots uh, made no pretense that God was pleased with them. Six, a hypocrite either ignores or denies the reality of future judgment. Initially, they either ignore or they must deny that there will be a future judgment. As I said earlier, I would suggest to you that often, over time, hypocrisy annihilates the sense of its own condition, and thus the future judgment is not feared because one doesn't know one's a hypocrite. Seven, hypocrisy is an attack on the character of God. Hypocrisy is an attack on the character of God because it denies God his sovereignty in both establishing a standard of righteousness and determining who meets the standard and by what means. Hypocrisy goes hand in hand with self-righteousness. Eight. Hypocrisy is insidious, beginning small and growing as more and more areas of a person's life are taken over by hypocrisy. Starts small, but it doesn't stay small. Nine. Hypocrisy destroys churches. It destroys churches by producing a climate of deception, manipulation, judgmentalism, and self-righteousness. And in this toxic environment, the Holy Spirit is not found. It is not found. So hypocrisy produces a climate that destroys churches. Ten. Hypocrisy is exhausting. It is exhausting. Why? Because a hypocrite must continually work to keep up appearances. One slip can bring it all crashing down. 
But for the person who is sincere, what you see is what you get. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to keep up images because who you are is who you are. But the hypocrite is constantly working to maintain the image. And that's hard work, and it tires people out. 11. Because pretending righteousness is so difficult, it is inevitable that the truth will become known. It's inevitable the truth will come out, right? Be sure your sin will find you out. Most often, the truth comes out to those closest to us. Closest to us. Those who see us in our unguarded moments. Thus, the ones most likely to be damaged by our hypocrisy are our own children. Our own children. They see us for who we really are. And if we're living the life of the hypocrite, they will know it. They will know it. Twelve. Hypocrisy among children is unintentionally encouraged when parental affection, praise, and acceptance is tied to outward behavior or performance. Unintentionally, we create hypocrites when we tie their worth, when we tie our affection, when we tie our praise into what they do. Or what they achieve. Doesn't take them long to figure it out. You want dad's approval? Behave like this. 13. Hypocrisy kills biblical discipleship. Because we do not want anyone to get too close to us. Lest they figure out who we really are. What kills biblical discipleship. And 14. A believer can fall into the sin of hypocrisy by counterfeiting some particular habit or act of godliness or a higher degree of devotion to God than is actually true. So one can be a follower of Christ, one can be a believer, and can slip and fall into the sin of hypocrisy by pretending that our commitment and our devotion to Christ is greater than it really is. Now, I'm sure there are more, but that's enough. That's enough. The old... um, the olden days, the, uh, they called them the divines, theologians, pastors, wrote a lot about hypocrisy. We don't write that much about it today. It was a lot written. And they broke it down into uh, four types of hypocrites. As they analyzed it, they said, you know what, there are four types of hypocrites. There are, there are the worldly hypocrites. These are the people who make a profession of religion merely from worldly considerations. That is, they they profess to have some sort of belief in God because it will do them good in this world. Now, we live in an increasingly secular culture, and so that's less and less true. But even so, very few business people or politicians will come out and say they're atheists. It's just not good for business. So this is the worldly hypocrite. Their attachment is... Purely from worldly motives. It's better to be religious, better to be thought religious than to be thought irreligious. The worldly hypocrite. There is the legal hypocrite. This is the person who modifies his behavior in an attempt to merit heaven while having no real love for God. So this is one who reforms their behavior in order to be Uh, granted access to to heaven, but they have no love for God. They have no care for God. The legal hypocrite. Again, these are the categories of the 
of the old divines. They spoke of the evangelical hypocrite. The evangelical hypocrite. That's a person who acknowledges sin and Christ dying for them, but they have no desire to live a holy life. So they will say, yes, I'm a sinner and Christ died for me, but it doesn't go any further than that. There is no desire to live for Christ. Content with their own situation, no desire to be rid of their secret sin, quite content with covering it up and looking righteous. The evangelical hypocrite. And finally, the enthusiastic hypocrite. This is the one who has an imaginary sight of his sin and of Christ and talks often about his love for and devotion to Christ, making himself good and wise and all the while living in the grip of the most scandalous sin. And what comes to mind here would be pastors who stand up week in and week out preaching and talking about Christ and living in an adulterous relationship. That would be the enthusiastic hypocrite. I don't think a person falls in any one category exclusively. I suspect that uh, this toxic brew draws from multiple categories. The hypocrite. Okay. You need some help. I need some help. I'm looking at your faces. Smile. Right? Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? Okay. If he hadn't risen from the dead... We would have no hope, but he has, he has risen from the dead. So what's the remedy for hypocrisy? And listen, this is a hard sermon to prepare. You know, I'm writing these things down. And I'm going, ooh, ah, ooh. right. There's enough uh, equal opportunity thumping here. So what's the remedy for hypocrisy when we either discern some strand of it in our own lives or we're tempted towards it? And we are. Well, it begins in the gospel. So let's, uh, let's do that. I'm looking at this clock. I wish it were broken. I suppose I could break it, couldn't I? Uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Right? The, the remedy, the first part of the remedy, and I would say that the strength of the remedy for hypocrisy is the strength of the remedy for any sin, and it lies in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to recognize that the source and power of godliness is found in the gospel, not in some other attainment. It is not what we do, it is what Christ has done that grants the power over sin. So Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Behold, old things have passed away, all things have become new. Right? Romans chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Reckon yourself dead to sin in Christ and alive to righteousness. You died with him. You rose from the dead with him. You have the life of God in your soul. This is the power of salvation. This is the power of the gospel. And it is the remedy for hypocrisy. A firm grip on the gospel a constant reminder of the gospel, a belief in the gospel, a reliance upon the gospel, grants us the power of God to overcome the sin of hypocrisy. Beyond that, let me add a few more. Recognize something. We need to recognize that true godliness begins with the affections. Because the gospel is the source of power, over sin, true godliness begins with the affections. And so, therefore, our disciple-making of others and of ourselves needs to focus first and foremost on the heart and then on the hands. How we believe is the first thing of importance. Proverbs chapter 4, and verse 23 
Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. From it flow the springs of life. Okay? It is our affections. What do we really love? Third, recognize in your children, moms and dads, that, and this is to quote Richard Baxter, the old Puritan, recognize that, quote, until the spirit regenerates their soul, all of their outward religion is a dead and pitiful thing. As a parent of four and a grandparent of 13, almost 14, it does my heart Uh, did my heart and when my children were growing does my heart now in my grandchildren i am delighted to see when they uh, sing scripture songs when they memorize bible passages when they when they exhibit outward behaviors that are consistent with christian faith but i did not delude myself and i do not delude myself that those are uh, um, absolute proof of their commitment to the lord jesus christ until the work of the, God, of the Spirit of God in their heart regenerates their dead soul, all that they have done is mimic godliness. And if they continue to mimic godliness for their entire life, they are desperately lost. Desperately lost. Fourth, remedy. In parenting. As a parent, seek to create a gracious environment where openness, transparency, and safety provide the necessary supports for honesty in the home. Mom and dad, is your home a place where your child could actually say to you, I do not believe. I do not believe. Would you be freaked out? Would you be undone? Or would you be thankful to know the state of their soul so that you could begin to, to, to or continue to evangelize them and, and arrange your discipleship in such a way to, to bring them in contact with the gospel? I think some parents are so afraid to hear that their child does not believe that they will arrange things so the child cannot be permitted not to believe. But listen... Belief is the internal thing. If it's not there, it's not there. I can tell you as a dad, I'd much rather have known the state of my children's soul than to deceive myself into thinking they were followers of Christ because they had some sort of outward compliance. Five. Seek out a true friend. Remedy, seek out a true friend who will love you enough to speak the truth to you. Proverbs 27 and verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Who do you have in your life that loves you enough to speak the truth to you? Got to have it. Six, cultivate your conscience by not violating it. Romans chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. I won't take you there for the sake of time to read it. But what Paul says is that, you know what? There's a, there's a, there are varying convictions that people have. And the point of it all is, is that when your conscience tells you that something is wrong, then don't do it. And if your conscience tells you something you should do, then do it. Now, your conscience may be misinformed, and that's a separate discussion. It needs to be biblically informed, but do never... Never train yourself or your children or your disciples to violate their own conscience. It's the first step down the path of hypocrisy. Seven. Cultivate faithfulness in your private devotional life of prayer and time, reading the word, meditating on the scriptures. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to save and sanctify His people. We need to cultivate a time of private devotion to the Lord through the Word of God. Who we are when no one's looking with the Scriptures is who we are. It's who we are. 
We need to cultivate it. And finally, refuse to merely go through the motions of public worship, but fight to engage with God through his word. It is very, very easy to come on a Sunday morning to stand, to mouth the words when your mind is a hundred million miles away. When the prayer is going on, you're thinking about other things. When the preaching is happening, you're in some place altogether different. It is very, very easy. I understand. It's a fight. And it's a fight worth having. It's a fight we've got to have. We cannot be nonchalant. In the presence of the Almighty. May God use his word profitably in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Time is short. We buzz through a lot of stuff. But it makes us aware of the dangers of hypocrisy, how it lies close at hand for each and every one of us. How easily we can slip into it. And our Father, how much you hate it. We thank you for Jesus Christ, that his death on a cross was a death that took the penalty for the hypocrisy of his people. There is not one hypocritical thought or action that will be charged against us who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has atoned for them all. He has burst the bonds of death is risen from the grave and he grants life everlasting to us. So, Father, we can rest with an assurance of that reality. And yet we live between the ages. We are your children. All things have become new. And yet the fight against the old man remains. Lord, may you strengthen us. May you wash our hearts. May you help our love for Christ to grow, our love for ourselves to recede. We pray, Father, for that person here this morning among us who is yet to experience the saving grace of Christ. They remain in Adam, fast bound to sin, unable to change or reform. Hypocrites, and they know it. Oh, Lord, may you grant them deliverance even in this moment. Tear the scales from their eyes, our Father. Enable them to declare bankruptcy upon their own self-effort. Cause them to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ and to, to believe in him and him alone as their only hope of salvation. Oh, Lord, may you deliver them. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.